Hi everyone, this is Ida Josefina, and you're listening to Reverb by Sane. Today, I'm very happy to announce that my guest is the brilliant Sune Lehman. Sune is a professor of networks and complexity science at the Technical University of Denmark. He's also a professor of social data science at the University of Copenhagen. Sune's work focuses primarily on quantitative understanding of social systems based on massive data sets. A physicist by training, his research draws on approaches from the physics of complex systems, machine learning, and statistical analysis. He works on large-scale behavioral data, and while his primary focus is on modeling complex networks, his research has made substantial contributions on topics such as human mobility, sleep, academic performance, complex contagion, epidemic spreading, and behavior on Twitter. Since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, Suna has served as a member of the task force established by the Danish government to model the spread in Denmark and also supporting the Danish contact tracing app. In this episode, Sune and I talk about a lot of interesting ideas. We start by discussing his personal journey in the pursuit of knowledge in academia. We discuss his research on diminishing collective attention spans and our exceedingly worrying relationship with technology. We then go on to his new areas of interest in looking at boredom, psychological richness, and why the cultivation of rich internal and external experiences as individual human beings matters so much. I love this conversation. I find this topic incredibly interesting and increasingly relevant. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. And as always, let me know what you think. I now bring you Sune Lehman. I'm here with Sune Lehman. Sune, welcome. It's super nice to be speaking with you today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. So we could start today by talking a little bit about your background. Do you want to tell us... Who are you? What's your story? What do you do? And we could just go from there. Yes, I'll give you the whole, the whole, uh, that, that whole story. Um, maybe just, I mean, the so I am a professor of something along the lines of complexity and network science, uh, and I do a lot, and and also I'm a I'm a professor somewhere else at the University of Copenhagen in social data science. And what I care about, in a way, is trying to figure out what we can learn about human beings from the traces we leave behind when we go online or when we use our credit cards or our smartphones. So these digital traces that we leave behind and that tech companies are getting rich from, can we use them to get smarter about human beings? Okay, super interesting. And how did you how did you uh, become interested in these type of questions? Like, what was the sort of personal journey in the development of these ideas? I mean, I'm assuming you didn't wake up at the age of 12 years old no, and no. realize that you wanted to study credit card tracing and find out how humans actually behave. No, yeah. no, no. So when I grew up, I was enamored with the idea of academic life. I think pretty early on, I read many, many books as a kid and I thought this, I like this, sitting very still and reading books is, is my kind of deal. And when I started university, I wanted to try and tackle the biggest ideas you could come across. So I actually started studying philosophy to begin with and physics in a kind of parallel uh, track of philosophy and physics. And, and basically after doing that for a while, I found out that I liked physics much more. So I had always been kind of a humanities person, but I just thought that philosophy was a lot of uh, talking about the history of philosophy. And whenever I had an idea, no one wanted to mm. listen. And in physics, it's, there's much more agency. So, so you, you discuss a much smaller part of the human existence, 
but within that part you could really say something and you could really develop complex theories like quantum mechanics and and uh, general relativity and these weird crazy theories and that that's what I was craving when I was young basically and and so what was that like journey more specifically like what kind of Things were you studying in, like, let's say, undergrad, and then how did the sort of ideas develop into uh, what you just mentioned that you're interested in studying today? Yeah, so so now I found myself this kind of humanities-loving kid who 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 liked uh, old books, studying physics, which was a was <laughs> which was a challenge, and and so I had to figure out what inside physics should I work on, and I thought I want to do something that's very difficult. And something where when I tell people, they're going to be, uh, they're going to think that's really pointless and useless. Uh, why would anyone do that? That was kind of my aim. And so, so I thought about it for a long time. And to be honest, I thought the kind of the holy grail of physics is, is called high energy physics. Those are the string theory and the ones, you know, that, that sit and figure out the fine structure of the universe at the sub, subatomic level. And I was like, that, that's, that's too, that's too mathy and too crazy for me. But I was, I, I fell in love exactly with networks and complexity. So, so there is a part of physics called the physics of complex systems, which is about systems of agents where each individual thing does something simple, but then what comes out on top, what comes out in the collective behavior is something complicated. And, and and it, it, it connects weirdly to something called statistical physics that sound like it would be the most boring thing in the world, which is how gases and, and things like that work. But, but complex systems, that was crazy. That, those are the guys that came out of this environment that were doing chaos theory. And, and, and right when I graduated, we had begun to get access to data sets and we could begin to study networks. And so we, we, we began to map out how do you describe mathematically these huge networks of the internet or scientific publications or genes within the human cell, stuff like that, basically. And when was this? So this... Like, was it before the massive break of social media? or Yeah, was it yeah, yeah, yeah. It? We, we were sitting on our yeah. uh, uh, Nokia uh, 3310s, uh, sending text messages. And um, and so this is... this. I wrote my master's thesis in 2003. And there, at that time, mm. getting a good data set was something like, I found an amazing data set. And then I finished my PhD in 2007... And so by that time, that's right around when the first iPhone began to come out and phones were definitely more there. And then I, I started as a professor after doing a postdoc in, uh, in the US, like let's say maybe 2010, something around then. And there all of a sudden now we just had too much data. We were like, what are we gonna do with those data? So, so I was really kind of, my intellectual journey was kind of getting, or who I was as a scientist was getting shaped right in that critical era where we went from no social media to though your whole life is on social media, basically. <laughs> That's insane. Were you thinking about, were you thinking about, you know, would you, were you thinking that 
what's happening today in the world as a result of social media was going to happen? Or how are you and your colleagues approaching these sort of privately when you're in discussion about your work? Because obviously it's a bit difficult to start, you know, doing the same kind of science you could do today after retroactively knowing yeah. what's happened. But what was the sort of conversation like back then? No, but then it was sheer optimism. We were just like, what? Google is giving us a gigabyte of free storage for our email? That's insane. And there's like, whoa, Twitter, you can you know, keep up with the whole world. It's amazing. <laughs> So we were we were just excited, and and the, you know if we complain about stuff, uh, you know it was that the data quality wasn't high enough, and they, those were also days where right. we didn't think a lot about privacy. We hadn't even you know one of the projects I worked on was that uh, like a smartphone operator in a large European country had just said, yeah, you can you can look at the data <laughs> from all the phone calls in an entire nation. And there were, you know, we had to take some kind of IRB training, generally, you know, designed for people who were collect questionnaires or something. So, so, so it was, there was like yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> so those were really early days in a way. And we would just, um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was a very different time. And, and only much later did I begin to realize that maybe this wasn't, <laughs> this wasn't all good. And maybe there was a business reason for Google giving me. Uh, gigabyte of free storage to in return for access to all my emails, right? Yeah. So when did you and your colleagues sort of start noticing the maybe dark undertone under all, all of this that's going on? And maybe that sort of somehow links um, back to your research about collective attention spans as well. So when did that interest come out? Yeah, so much, much later in a way. So, so I think that I mean, I don't even know when the shift happened, right? I think for lots of people, they still think that Facebook is the greatest thing in the world and that the fact that we can all connect to one another is just unequivocally great. I, I, I mean, just a, like a silly anecdote. Uh, so, so my kids are at school and the, the parents in the class wanted to uh, create a face, Facebook group for my kids' class. And then, <laughs> then they said... Um, and then I said, well, could we do something other than Facebook? Because I honestly, I try not to use Facebook more than I have to. And, um, and then some super friendly uh, other parent in the class said, well, you know, it's not that hard. You know, if you just uh, try it, you know, you can. <laughs> and, and so she was kind of trying to explain to me. She thought that, like, babe, that's cute. Yeah, she thought, well, she basically thought that I didn't know how to use Facebook and she would help me. Uh, get started on it, and and so I think so I think that this this dawning sense that something is is awry uh, is is still not hasn't permeate, permeated everywhere at all, and so so yeah. and so it's not I don't think it's that long ago, but maybe for me somewhere like twenty fifteen like when, well basically when I started having kids and I realized that even though they were very cute. Uh, I would still check emails uh, before uh, playing with them, and and you know, yeah. So so for me, it was somewhere around then when I realized I'm not I'm not running I'm not running this. You know, someone else is deciding what I'm doing rather than me. I guess. Uh, right. So, so so you wrote this paper, and it's it's called accelerating dynamics dynamics of collective attention, right? Yes. Yeah. So when did when did you start working on that? Was that the first um, paper within this sort of Yes. Well, I mean, it's, it's, 
So, so even though we're all worried about the internet taking over, the, the, <laughs> the, the evidence for it is still quite sparse, and especially large-scale evidence where we look across big systemic changes. And there's still a lot of people who, who think, well, you know, is it, isn't this just another moral panic? You can dig up some Socrates quote where he goes like, ah, oh, the kids nowadays, they're writing stuff down. You know, they can't just remember everything in their head. And, and so, so when the comic books came out, people were panicking. When TV came out, people were panicking. So a lot of people are still saying, well, you know, what's different? What's different about now? And then the studies uh, that support that something might be different are very small uh, and just, you know, you, you install some app on 10 people's phones and then you look at that data. So, so the, the thing that's special about what we did is that we actually looked at it systemically for millions of people in many different systems to see if we could detect some kind of change. And, and so, the, so, yeah, so, so the idea is pretty old and actually it comes, uh, so I was reading the old, the paper newspaper um, about a, a German sociologist called Hartmut Rosa, I think his name is. So I haven't read his books, uh, so, so, but I uh, just stole his idea right away. And he has this idea that he calls social acceleration. And so he's, I think, maybe, uh, I mean, don't crucify me if I'm getting this completely wrong, but I think he is kind of this like old <laughs> Marxist school at least, I mean, he's not a Marxist, but he comes from that kind of uh, school of thought. And, and, and basically, he has this theory that built into capitalism, because there is a growth paradigm that you have to grow and grow and grow, then all these other things have to logically follow this idea of continued growth. And one of the things he, he points out is that things, not just on social media, but in a lot of different places, have to move faster and faster. And so I was fascinated by this theory, and it's just a theory, it's just someone saying, this has to be the case. And I wondered, can we check it in data? And I remember discussing this uh, with my boss at the time, and he said, uh, he said, well, maybe you could measure it on Twitter. And I thought, it's true, you know, like in 2014, we've had Twitter now for quite a while. We can actually potentially absorb, uh, we, can, we can see, maybe observe changes. Uh, and then I thought about it a little bit more and I realized that it's very difficult to actually measure. Because if you think about it, people change how they use Twitter a lot, right? So some people use Twitter intensively for a period and then they stop using Twitter. And then they use it a lot again. <laughs> some people yeah. just, some people have a di completely different baseline than Twitter an hour every day, but they never tweet. Other people tweet and tweet and tweet and they have conversations. So there's this big heterogeneity, so big differences in how people use the platform. And, and they have different levels of engagement with the platform. So the question for me was, what, what am I gonna measure on Twitter that's going to tell me something about how things change. And I basically gave up because I couldn't think of anything. And, 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 but I kind of stowed the idea away somewhere deep in the uh, soup uh, inside my uh, head of uh, various things that are going on. And then uh, some, some week, actually a couple of years later, there was a young scientist, um, uh, Philip Lorenz, who came to visit and talk about his work on something that I had done 
or related to something I had done on network. So I'd met him uh, when I was in Berlin uh, for a conference, and he, he said, I, I have this thing, and I said, come on up to Copenhagen, give a talk. And he gave a talk about like some weird German social network <laughs> where they, um, about fashion or something like that. And they had a lot of hashtags. It was okay. kind of like, I don't know, like a pre pre-Instagram for German fashion or something along those lines. And he'd gotten the data. That's how it worked in those days. <laughs> and and what he looked at was those hashtags had this interesting behavior. Where the, and and, and uh, he showed this figure about how hashtags kind of increased in popularity and then decreased in popularity again. And he was, you know, saying something yep. about these increases and decreases in popularity. And when I saw that, <laughs> I... I realized that this was it. This was the thing that could be the measurement tool for something like acceleration. Because if um, if you plot how quickly things become popular on average, and then how quickly the decrease in popularity again for Twitter, and you do that over time, basically that's that's how you could see it, right? Then you could actually get a sense of you could get a sense if something was changing. So after the talk, I said, that's great. I like your work, but I think we should collaborate on a different project where we measure if this acceleration is, is, is basically if, if we can see an acceleration in some other systems. And then um, I also talked to his advisor because you can't just put another person's PhD student to work. So, and he has a, an advisor who's a super cool guy who, by the way, is also called Philip. So now we had two Philips. And then I, I got one of my PhD students and I said, let's create a data set for them. And so we created a data set. They went and measured it. And lo and behold, we did see the change. We saw that there was an acceleration over time, that these peaks, basically things took less time to year by year. And it's very clear evolution, things take less time to become popular and they take less time to drop out of our collective attention again. And it was a fantastic experience. And of course, the main reason why this was exciting was because it showed that I wasn't uh, crazy. <laughs> that, <laughs> you know, it, it actually showed that something is changing. And I think that's remarkable. Yep. And so what kind of changes uh, are we talking about here? Like, when did you start, when did you analyze, like, the first sort of set of hashtags and how did that change over the course of years until whenever? I hate to be disappointing, but I can't, I don't have numbers. We, we're going to have to look them up. I can try and, and uh, cruise to the paper, but it is, but it is significant. So, so, so the amount of time okay. that a hashtag is trending just in those few years that we look at is significantly squeezed. But maybe another thing, just to distract you and uh, any potential listeners, what we did was we thought, all right, but we're not, you know, so, so I, I don't know how aware people are what academics do, but basically our job is to write uh, papers and publish them in scientific journals. But scientific journals is... It's not just a scientific journal. There's a hierarchy of scientific journals that goes from the coolest 
best journals that's like uh, in soccer you know it's the premier league or whatever and then it goes all the and so so those are called something like nature and science very general names and then it goes all the way down you know to the to the annals of the uh, hungarian uh, uh you know horticultural <laughs> something or other uh, where uh, maybe it's less prestigious. I, I don't know about the Hungarian horticultural society. A little niche. Yes. So, so it gets more and more niche. And basically, you, if you have something big, uh, then you want to get it in the best journals because that's kind of the currency of science. Like it, that means somehow to other scientists that you did something that's important. And so I thought this is a big idea. So we have to somehow uh, try and get this published in a nice uh, journal. And so to do that, you can't just be like, yeah, we saw something on Twitter, and uh, what do you think? Then they'll be like, well, is it really general? Is it something that's happening? So what we did is that we expanded this, and we looked at a lot of other systems. So we thought, what, where can we get data? We found data on box office. So basically, <laughs> how do movies start making money, and how do they stop making money again? How long does it, how long does yep. it go? We looked at um, Google Books. So we looked at n-grams. So, so an n-gram is a that's a little bit abstract, but basically it just means a, a combination of uh, pairs of words in a text. So, so if you say uh, where did this interest, if that that's your sentence, you would say you look the bigrams would be where did did this this interest. So you kind of you can you you basically say you 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 convert a text into just pairs of words that follow one another. And the reason we did that is that that would capture concepts. Also, we go to longer, uh, not just uh, pairs of words, but uh, uh, sequences of three words, and those would capture uh, concepts, you know, like late capitalism or uh, Great Depression or something like that. And so we could also look, and the, and the Google Books corpus goes back to the 1800s, so we could also look at how steep, how quickly do concepts basically become popular and how quickly do they lose interest. And uh, yeah, so, and, and, and the remarkable thing is, you know, the, the, we also looked at Google Trends, uh, Google uh, search words, and in all of these systems, we found the same thing. And for the books, like I said, it goes all the way back to 1800s and we can see a consistent increase in the steepness of these popularity bursts. So it's a very general phenomenon that's not new, but it's just, it's, it's kind of coming to a head now because there is really, yeah, a lot going on basically. So what, like, what do you think the, I mean, I'm sure that you personally, you've thought about this, of course, but what was there, a, like, was there discourse around this paper and coming out about the implications of diminishing attention spans? Like, what was the sort of result of that paper coming out? Well, so, yeah, so, so uh, the paper itself got a lot of uh, attention uh, because it was the, the first study uh, of its kind to kind of show this in a very general way. And maybe if I can just put in kind of a little parentheses here, I would say that Part of the reason why there is so little large-scale quantitative research on this, one part is that it's difficult. Like you, you have to have a big computer that can handle a lot of data. But another part of it is that the yeah. platforms don't typically share this data. It's proprietary to Facebook how the total, like you can get your own Facebook data, but you can't get data on the totality of 
Facebook usage. You can't, similarly on uh, Twitter, you have to, uh, the, the, reason, the reason that we had access to really good Twitter data was that we, we were, like my group was one of the first to do research on Twitter, period. So back then they had a kind of research access track because they, they didn't know how they're, this was early days when they weren't making any money. And, and so they're just like, yeah, yeah, researchers, you can get access uh, to data. And then we were kind of grandfathered in to have this great Twitter access. But nowadays, again, like you can get access to a lot of data on Twitter, but not to the large scale cha changes. Right. So, so this data is actually difficult to come by. And that's, that's in a way why we don't know so much about this and why this study continues to remain a little bit rare in the literature. And I would love to see more research quantifying how our collective behavior is changing and kind of validating it more. Yeah. Um, but coming back to yeah. the conversations around it, here, I mean, I have to say, since I'm a researcher, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a sociologist, so, <laughs> so you should really talk to them about the implications because they know better. They know much more that, like, than I do about how human brains work and, and how being constantly online changes our, um, changes our social behavior among other people. But, but my sense is that we are in a weird way, that we are, that we're at our limits, that, that basically human beings, you know, we use a lot of metaphors around computers to talk about humans, how much you can process, how much you can think. But but what I'm fascinated and, and reading about now is this idea that, but we live in, like our brains are not computers. We think differently if we've slept well. We think differently if we're taking a walk than if we're sitting down. We think differently if we're cold and tired, that we are in a deep way yeah. embodied. Um, and And so, all these things influence our thinking and our ability to think clearly and to be empathetic and so on. And similarly, we are not very good, like we, we use the term multitasking, but human beings, as I understand it from the cognitive science side, can't really multitask. We can do one thing at a time. Our brain can do one thing and one thing only pretty much. And when we are doing several things at a time, what's actually happening is that we're switching between them and that also has a cost. So I think that this acceleration of everything moving more quickly is making us think less deeply and it is also making us more shallow in a sense, that we just can't keep up yeah. with things, right? Like if, just take a simple example and say you're a journalist, you know, if things are moving slowly, you have time to fact check. And you have time to make sure that before you write something, that you know that it's something that you are certain is true. But we've seen, we've seen lots of examples in the last, I don't know, many years of journalists following things that are evolving incredibly quickly on Twitter or whatever. And so they're forced to respond very quickly. They're forced to put stuff out really quickly. And then, of course, you end up putting out more stuff that tends that you actually bought into some kind of scam or red herring or fake news or whatever that then can have really negative downstream consequences. So that's the kind of yeah. uh, things that I worry about. 
Yeah, I mean, I entirely share your concern and hypothesis around this. I, I've been looking into the subject a lot myself and with saying that's something that we talk about and some of the problems that we're trying to tackle with the, with the project as well. I mean, I think anyone, if they even just perceive themselves, you know, m mindfully of how their behavior is in relationship or as a result of, you know, being constantly connected to technology, you can notice that. I, yes. And I think my, my parents, for example, they're in their mid 40s and they always talk about the fact that like just slowly throughout time they've had less of an ability to focus on for example reading like i think it's quite easy to actually notice if you really start thinking about what your behavior is in, in a day-to-day -day like in any kind of instance um so yeah i think it's it's also crazy when you look into this that how much like how little there is talk about this for example in like mainstream media and how little this topic is researched in general um, because I've been Googling this a lot and it's actually very difficult to find the right sort of research and the right data points. So definitely hope as well that um, that there's a little bit more work being done around this. But when we when we you and I spoke um, some days ago about doing this podcast, uh, you mentioned that your um, your thinking as a result of thinking about these things has led to also an interest in in boredom and psychological richness. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, so, so, and this, I mean, in a weird way, also loops back to the to the to the beginning of our talk, because I, I I'm kind of I'm a you someone who started studying philosophy and physics became interested in networks and then went from networks to a more general study of human behavior online. And, and so I very much try to let my interests shape my research. I'm, I become interested in something and then I, I let that be an inspiration to have uh, ideas that hopefully are non-boring, uh, since we're going to be speaking about boredom. Uh, and, and so because of my kind of personal, uh, concern about this, I, uh, I have, I've, I've thought so many people are writing about our attention and our attention spans and how things are changing. And I was thinking if I'm doing something for like my quote unquote work, maybe I should try and move in a direction that's a little bit different. And, and then I, a thing that I realized was that boredom, it has a kind of deep connection to all of this because boredom with the advent of the smartphone has been more or less eradicated from human life. At least if you're a smartphone owner and a frequent user, we can see this, we can see that, you know, if, if you, if you, don't bring your phone one day and you just observe people as you walk around town, you'll see that I like a, a thing that I noticed that I was taking the subway and people were rolling down the escalators and, and those, I don't know what, 12 seconds rolling down the escalator was so boring to some people that they would, <laughs> they would be like, I need some entertainment <laughs> now, you know? So they would check their phone on the way down and then they could uh, pack up the phone and then keep walking. So, so, not even rolling down a, a relatively short escalator, you, you don't even get that time alone with your thoughts. And I, thought, I think that's very fascinating. This, first of all, this, that we have this inability to be alone with our own thoughts. I think that's why mindfulness and meditation is also becoming uh, bigger and bigger because it's, 
basically it's just a, in, in like a very primitive way, even if you do it poorly, at least you learn to just sit without fiddling and doing something, right? You, you learn to just be still. Um, and, yeah. and, and so, so you have this kind of source of boredom removal right in your pocket. And, th and that led me to think, well, what, what, what happens to a human brain if you remove boredom? Basically, that was the thought. Um, so what's the, like, what, how does this lead into the idea of psychological richness? Yes. All right. So if, if we, so, so, so if we, we think about what role does boredom play, right? Basically boredom is a kind of like, like the way that I would define it. So, um, I've been reading a lot of philosophers and, and, uh, psychologists and a lot of different people kind of write about boredom and everyone has their own definition. But the way that I would define boredom is a feeling that the situation that you're in right now isn't stimulating enough. That's my definition of it. And I think that if you want to use an analogy, it's a, it's a sense that it is very uncomfortable. Like you should not underestimate how uncomfortable and powerful boredom is. If you remove stimulus, stimuli, from a person, like if you put them in isolation, they go crazy. People who are put in isolation in the prison go crazy. So it's this very powerful internal <laughs> mechanism in human beings that says, whatever you're doing now is not stimulating enough. You should go and do something else. And, and so, so it's kind of like, um, you know, in your physical body, if you put your hand into the fire, you have pain as a similar kind of physical thing that says, you know, there you're experiencing strong pain in your hand, maybe uh, you should remove it from the fire. And basically I think boredom does something along the, the lines of that. Okay, does that make sense? No. Yes. Good. Yeah, so, so I'm getting to the richness, <laughs> but I just have to kind of set up the, the boredom first, so I hope it's okay. And, and so- Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So, so, so I think it's this thing, and, and if you think about it, then you, now you're in a situation, it's not stimulating enough. What can you do? And basically, I think that there are two paths, and there's a kind of internal path. If you can't move, if you're stuck on a train or in a line or whatever, the, the boredom can force you to turn your mind inward and start reflecting. And in there, <laughs> in your head, several things can happen, right? You can imagine that you are... Yesterday, you were in a fight with your significant other and in the heat of the moment, full of righteous anger of the unfairness that were perpetrated against you, you were just angry and yelling and screaming and you couldn't see the other person's perspective at all. But maybe if you think back on it, maybe you realize that there could be something to the point that they were making. And maybe it would allow you to see the situation in a new light and learn from it and evolve as a human living person, right? Bad things can also happen. You could also just waste time, right? You think that's what people used to do. They used to have all kinds of strategies for passing the time to think, well, what if I had a million dollars? How would I spend it? And they would just daydream about cool stuff they would do. Like you could do all kinds of weird stuff in your head. You could also do negative stuff. You can start thinking about how miserable your life is and how much you hate yourself. That's also something people do. <laughs> so it's not unequivocally good, but at least it turns you inward and make you reflect. 
But then, and this is where the psychological richness comes out, there is also an external path. Boredom is the kind of the opposite force of curiosity, right? It's the thing that curiosity pulls you somewhere and boredom kicks you out of somewhere. So if you're like, why, if you lived on a farm in the 1800s, you would travel a hundred miles, <laughs> you know, walk a hundred miles to go to a party uh, where you could meet some other young people because your life was super boring and you really were driven to go out and to do something. And, and you know, boredom is, I think, at the root of a lot of human exploration. It, it's, it's something that takes us out and makes us do things actively. And this is where the richness comes in. Yeah. That I think that, that basically being constantly having a source of boredom relief right at your fingertips is basically stops us from go like stop it stops this feeling from building up it stops us from building up enough impetus to actually get out there and we just end up sitting in front of screens night after night instead of going out and meeting people and talking to people and that's where the psychological richness comes in yeah i mean yeah i mean essentially it's a catalyst for curiosity no yes rather than them being opposites one affects the other. So, how are you exploring these ideas? Are you uh, what's the what's the potential future research about? Yeah. So, so can I just can I just say something about this psychological richness? So, I didn't come up with this. It's yes. it's another it's it's a it's a researcher. I'm trying to uh, just I looked up the name because I I'm just uh, so so. Oishi, I think yes, was the surname. Yes, it's Oishi and Westgate, and it's these two psychologists. And what I love about it is that it also connects back to my philosophy days because they basically provide this as an answer to what is the good life i love that i love that people are just doing, doing so i have no credit in this i'm just a fan and i love this idea yeah I, I i just find it so amazing that basically if you think about the history of philosophy you have to say like what is the good life and back in the day again fewer distractions they would just sit around and think about what is the good life right and, the, and there is kind of some Schools have thought about uh, about that, and the and the main first one is hedonism. It, and it just means that the good life is the more happiness you can experience, uh, the better. So the good life would be to have infinite money and just sit and gorge yourself on food, taking drugs, uh, having sex, all the things that human beings uh, like to do, and just to have as much of that as possible. That's kind of, that's kind of like the idea. This is a people. <laughs> it doesn't sound so bad to no. me. <laughs> it doesn't sound so bad, but it's a little bit short term, right? The, <laughs> that in the end, at some point, a lot of philosophers also pointed out, that's going to start to feel pretty, um, pretty meaningless, right? After, after maybe, maybe you would do this, you love it for a week, maybe you'd love it for a month, but after a year of only kind of doing these things, you would start to feel pretty bad. And, and, so, and so the and there are many responses. A lot of people love Stoicism. Uh, but the big response that the other one is comes from Aristotle, who is another uh, a great philosopher. And he has this idea of virtue ethics, where he basically says there's a list of things here. You know, it's, and it's like bravery and how good you are and so on. And you want to be in the middle. Like if, if you're too brave, then you're just, you're just being crazy, dude. Like maybe slow it down. And if you're too non-brave, then you're a coward. So you have to be in the middle. So we had this whole system about 
being leading a kind of virtuous, meaningful life where you where you go through a list of many dimensions, you do that. But moderately. Moderately, <laughs> yes. You want to be in balance. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and and that that is also, and I like that philosophy of life. It's pretty nice. But but then uh, these two psychologists now come up came up with this. So basically, they're saying that something is wrong. Like you can kind of live this highly virtuous life and still be unsatisfied. You could still be bored in a weird way. And the thing that matters is to have a life. They argue that's full of deep and rich experiences. And those experiences can be happy ones. They could also be sad ones. That experiencing a great sadness. So, so the way that I like to think about it, I'm not sure they use this phrasing, is kind of the at your deathbed view on life. You know, that if you had lived your whole life in a room just stimulated with pleasure the whole time, then at, at your deathbed, looking back at life, maybe you wouldn't be super excited. And similarly, with a virtuous life, you may look back and say, wow, I was really virtuous, but I also, it was kind of too sensible. But if you, but the psychologically yeah. rich life, you go back and you go, oh, do you remember the time when we went, you know, on a boat in the jungle and we met these <laughs> people, they almost killed us, but then we figured it out and whatever would happen, but crazy experiences, these weird things that, and, and, and the reason I also love it is that it kind of gels with my own view of it, which is you, that a life you should collect as many unusual experiences as possible that few people have had. To me, that's the game. And I think, and I think that's really nice. And, and the reason it pairs so well with the boredom piece is that those are the kinds of experiences that are the least boring. We can be very stimulated by a great show on Netflix, but in the end, when you watched season seven of whatever show, no matter how good the writing, you, 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 you're satiated by it. It's enough. It's too much. Yeah. Yeah. And and or not even you're not even really satisfied. And it's not yours, right? It's someone yeah, it else's. Again, yeah. like from the deathbed perspective, are you really going to be excited to tell someone and be like, "Yeah, and then I watched all of Succession," you know, or <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's not you want to be out there yeah. on your own uh trying stuff. And I think that's what the, the phones are keeping us away from. So on the research side, yeah. now just to come back to that, I know I've taken too much of your time already. No, no, but I actually want to make a little note just in between yeah. there, because when I was reading these um, things that you sent me by these psychologists, I think one thing that was missing for me was this idea of like psychological richness being so tied to sort of external experiences. And I've talked a lot about, you know, or thought a lot about the like the experience economy and and how that's sort of coming to an end in certain ways and and my personal prediction is that we're sort of entering into this new realm of the inner experience economy that has a lot to do with actually boredom and it has to do with creating um, circumstances and environments for yourself to be uncomfortable and be bored and really focus on also the creation of a very rich like inner experience you know, environment and not just, not just get that from those like crazy trips to the jungle or whatever. Maybe I have a personal bias in this because I've, um, I've lived in a lot of different countries and traveled a lot. And I felt like 
a lot of the time I was kind of putting a band-aid on something rather than just turning inward and thinking about what's there. And I have a crazy sort of a bit of a crazy contrast because I grew up half in the Finnish Lapland and half in California. So it also reminds me of sort of my childhood of on one hand being really bored and coming up with weird games and the other one being sort of constantly stimulated. So maybe I maybe I misunderstood and I didn't really quite get that like the point of the psychological richness, but I would really put an emphasis on the importance of that also coming from the internal world. I love it. I love it. The way that I see the psychological richness is that it has a lot to do also with social experience. But I agree with you that there is a blind spot almost in our culture around this internal experience. I think you really put your finger on something. And and it's something that I've been I've been thinking about that when I was when I was young, like let's say 17, 18, I spent so much time just in my room thinking about who I wanted to be, why I wanted to do that, what was the thing, what, you know, just forming the person that I would become basically and kind of outlining it and make, like thinking about, do I want to be, I can choose anything. Do I want to be this kind of person, this kind of person? I would just think about it and I would clarify it. And and I have a suspicion, this is again completely unscientific, but I have a suspicion that some of the anxiety that we see in so many young people today has to do with the fact that there's just no space for this reflection because you're constantly exactly. uh, just being bombarded with stuff and you don't have time to form who you are. And I feel very assured because I spent, you know, hundreds of hours just taking walks, thinking about this, thinking, well, should it be philosophy? Should it be whatever it was? And and I really think that that's missing. And I think that you, you really put your finger yeah. on something. And of course we see it with, you go on a silent retreat or whatever, and, 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 and that there is this kind of focus on the internal. But I think you're right that it's completely unexplored. Um, in many ways, yes. and, and it's and it's very valuable. But but I also think, as I pointed out before, that it's a double-edged sword. That there's also <laughs> that it also can be scary in there. So so I think part of it yeah. might also be equipping people with tools to deal with sitting with your thoughts and kind of get, you know exactly. And I and I think that's why the 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 sort of boom of the mindfulness industry I think is really valuable. I think it's cool. I think it's giving people tools in a sort of feasible yeah. way to start practicing that. So uh, we're kind of running out of time here, but is there anything else you would like to say? No, I I loved uh, chatting. I I think it's uh, um, really interesting. I think this thing about the internal, internal world, I think is something I even want to bring with me in my own life. Um, because I guess, you know, once you stop... Once you stop using te- this is the last thought, and then I promise I'll be quiet. Uh, once you stop <laughs> using technology, it's not enough, right? It really isn't enough. You like you will go crazy if you go like, okay, and I'm going to stop using my smartphone. You need something else there, and the question is, what is it? And I think it's something personal, right? It should be people you love, of course. It should be external experiences, but it should also be internal experience. So how do you structure those? And I think that's the big question is, what do you put in place of 
this massive void that will form when you will remove something that big from your life. And I think that's maybe Absolutely. the question for the future. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's some good food for thought and a question for our listeners as well too to take into consideration. Well, thank you so much, Suna. It was super nice talking to you. I think this was a very interesting and valuable conversation. So um, yeah, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you so much.